0: Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists... Welcome to this episode of The Microscopists, and I'm joined by W.E. Myrna of Stanford University,
1: and we discuss interdisciplinarity. You know, uh, I'm hard to to put in a box. That's, uh, that's, uh, certainly, I'm a card-carrying chemist. Discovering. Jumping Molecules. So these these jumping molecules, that was a truly exciting time because that was a total surprise. The importance of music in WE's life. Singing Gilbert and Sullivan and that connection is actually how I met my wife. And being a procrastinator. My thesis, uh, the papers that came out of my thesis work did take several years after I left Cornell to actually get them published. All in this episode of The Microscopists.
0: Hi, welcome to this episode of The Microscopist. I'm Peter O'Toole from the University of York, and today I'm joined by W.E. E. Merner from Stanford at UC San Diego. How are you today?
1: I'm wonderful. Thank you very much. Great to see you, Pete.
0: Yeah, and thank you for taking the time to join me today. I've got to say, uh, slightly, I'm going to start slightly off tack. I'm looking behind you, and I can see a ton of books. So are they all factual, or are they fictional or a mix? <laughs>
1: uh these are really all factual uh they they are uh covering sort of the uh, many fields that i've been involved in uh elsewhere w- w- we have some fictional books and or things like that or historical fiction books in the house <laughs> so this is this is uh, my co- uh, home collection of these books there's a similar collection in my office at work actually do you know I, I, this, this is going
0: in a different direction to normal i believe this background picture i just put in zoom if you're listening <laughs> This is a W.E. in his office at work, and one of my quick-fire questions is often, are you a messy or a tidy person? Ah.
1: <laughs> so uh, I would say that this particular picture, if you look closely, you actually will see uh, little post-its along the edge of the, of the bookcase, right along the lower edge of the books, okay? Yeah. And uh, those post-its actually p- provide the dividers and the sections in which the books are organized. So th- this it turns out to be uh, very organized in a certain way, uh, and in the sense that I can find things pretty well uh, in, in this office. Uh, so that's, that's the sort of aspect of, of this sort of, if you like, uh, cluttery mess that, uh, that it makes it a little bit redeeming for me.
0: <laughs> no, so it's an organized mess. It's not a mess, it's not a tidy, it's not a mess, it's an organized, Organized, I don't know what I'm I better be careful what I say, but uh, it's quite good actually having the virtual background, having your library at home, merging into your library pretty much at work, and just, just know how many books there are. It's uh it is an insane amount. So, when you said you had some fictional books elsewhere, what sort of fiction are you into?
1: Well, uh, actually, historical fiction, uh, you know, books like uh. The swerve I, I've been enjoyed very much because it's uh, talking about those those early days and the, the monks that preserved sort of the early history of the Greeks and so on to, through through the Middle Ages, things like that. I enjoy that the most. Okay, uh, so that, that was a complete digression to how we usually start. So
0: I, I guess from my perspective, your most well-known, most famous for super resolution work and your Nobel Prize in chemistry back in 2014. Uh, When you got that Nobel Prize uh, for the recognition of your tremendous work before that, did it make a change to how you perceived work after than before?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, There's there's some ways in which there were changes and some ways in which there, there weren't. Uh, I actually continued and want to continue and have continued doing research with my students and postdocs and so on because uh, I enjoy working with them I enjoy uh, the challenges of the new things that haven't been done and, and all of that but uh, of course the Nobel Prize made a huge change uh, in in other aspects of, of, of my work just because uh, of, of a bunch of sort of side effects if you like there's uh, people who, um uh overly revere the nobel laureates uh, okay and and uh therefore a- a invite them to come to meetings and so forth just to have a nobel laureate show up they don't care what you say and uh you know that kind of thing so uh there's there's been a big mixture of trying to balance those those sorts of things uh with with my desire to sort of continue science <clears throat> okay so well- what got what got you into science? Let's go back. What got you into science
0: to start with? In fact, no. Do you know what? Let's go back a bit further. When you were the age of ten, around that age, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: Well, at that time, I was very excited about uh, lots of things technical, uh, because my father had been trained in, in electronics and in the service. Uh, And so I had some electronics books to read from him. Uh, Also, he was a chemist uh, when his degree was in chemistry. So I had a chemistry set in the backyard in a a metal building that that, that I I called the, the shed or something like that. Uh, or the playhouse or the or the clubhouse. That's it, the clubhouse. And uh I could go out there and you know do clean chemi- chemistry experiments or do electronics experiments. So I, I was just at a time just a sort of soaking up science uh and, and really enjoying all aspects of mathematics and all of that as well. So uh, this I think came mostly uh from uh genes but also from the Times uh which uh depended upon uh, the, the world sort of reacting the, to Sputnik and things like that uh, as a as a driver in the uh, in the United States to encourage young people to uh, to go into science. So my parents were encouraging me strongly to go into science or engineering or, or something like that. So your Nobel prizes in chemistry, but would you ever ca- class yourself as a chemist? You know, uh, I'm hard to to put in a box. That's uh, that's. Uh, certainly i'm a card-carrying chemist okay i've I've been a member of the american chemical society for years decades (laughs) i teach general chemistry to students and so on uh but in in fact uh, my career has had an evolution uh, moving through many fields of science uh, starting with engineering adding physics and mathematics and all of my Primary degrees are actually in physics and so on, and then uh, in my career in industry, uh, there was a lot of physical chemistry added, and uh, which I enjoyed tremendously, and and then much more chemistry, and now, now biology and so on. So uh, I, I'm really a, a person who enjoys all of these. Do you have a favorite? What what do you have a favorite
0: area of science, though? If you could just concentrate on just one area. Or do you love that multidisciplinary approach to it?
1: Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, what I think I enjoy most is, is methods. What I enjoy most is uh, applying engineering, physics and chemistry to to make something happen, uh, something new happen, to analyze, to Calculate what's the best signal? How can you detect a single molecule? I mean, that was sort of the big driver at the beginning, how to detect that single molecule, which is a combination of several of these fields. Uh, And I still enjoy that because every time we uh, improve our detection, then we measure something more and, and uh, the applications to biology right now, of course, are the most interesting to me uh, because there's such a world of problems that, that need to be explored, uh, that all of which have heterogeneity and all of which have different behaviours that can be uh, observed a little better if you observe uh, single molecules one by one.
0: So it's interesting that all that multidisciplinary, the, the ability, that, that flexibility to do Quite broad research. Uh, I think academia is fairly unique in the ability to enable that freedom. Uh, I, I did. I, I did actually do some background research, uh, which I don't always do. Uh, but I noticed you worked for IBM for a while. Yeah. Ago. Yes. Uh, did that have the
1: same freedom to operate? Well, I actually think that's the opposite. Uh, if we if we uh, go go through what you just said a little bit and think more about it, uh, academia has historically been dominated by what what people often call pillars of excellence so there'll be a professor who doesn't collaborate with anyone and has a huge crew of people working around him and and doesn't learn a lot about what's happening across the street or in the other buildings and so on that's that's kind of the way it's been historically now this of course has changed a lot recently there's a lot more multidisciplinary work in uh, many universities now um the comparison to the um corporate research laboratory is is an interesting one because uh, i was at ibm research uh and at one of those uh, great industrial research laboratories uh, of that time where uh you could uh prf- pursue basic research but um and rather than just applications to to products okay and so that that uh, Bell Laboratories is another example, and there's more examples uh, that uh, of that type but they've uh, gotten smaller or changed in, in more recent years because there's been more competition pushing companies more toward just worrying about uh, trying to get the products out. In any case, the the Aspect of uh, this experience that relates to your question is uh, we often were there trying to work on a, a big problem. Let's say optical storage. Uh, I was heavily involved with optical storage, and this was going to be by any of multiple techniques, not just you know pits in a CD, but actually writing bits into molecules absorptions. Okay, at low temperatures, uh, something called spectral hole burning. And and this spectral hole burning idea was intensely focused on the properties of molecules, absorbing light. And so I had a lot of opportunity to study that, but we collaborated with engineers who who wanted to figure out, will this ever work? Will it uh, be practical? What will be the cost uh, for all of this? And with chemists who were making the molecules that enabled this hole burning storage. So physicists, chemists, engineers, were actually at IBM Research all working together Uh, So there was very few barriers between departments because of this uh, focus on getting the project to move forward and learning whatever you needed to do to push the project forward. So it's a fascinating thing. And I I sort of view myself as bringing that kind of uh, viewpoint, you know, to uh, to academia as one of the people who brings it to academia.
0: And as you rightly say, uh, that mindset of that pillar of excellence, one one group being very insular and being very big within themselves is I think hopefully broken down almost, not completely. I, I, I'm I still aware there's these singular pillars within different uh, institutes around the world. But mostly, uh, most big groups are team players now. Uh, mm-hmm, I think that's, that's
1: true. But there's still people to say, are you a chemist or a physicist you know and, and I have to say both, I and mean, we're doing biology and we're using engineering so <laughs> uh, so you know uh, there, there are some people who kind of push this uh, pretty far
0: <laughs> well, I think there's an advantage once, once the group the pillar becomes team playing, it can associate it can work with chemists, physicists, biologists uh, to really optimize and get the best out of science and speed science up right I think is important as well yes uh, Absolutely true. So that must have changed a lot. You you, you say you brought that culture in or helped certainly develop that culture. Did you meet much resistance from certain groups?
1: Well, a little bit. I would say that some people uh, historically might have said, uh, "Oh, well, we maybe we can't hire this person uh, because uh, he's not really a chemist." Let's say, <laughs> and others have to explain, "Well, uh, how, how can this person fit in a chemistry department?" and and so forth. So that that battle was won, of course, but you know it might not have been won ten years ago, but ten years before I arrived. Yeah. So, <clears throat>
0: on a completely different note, do you remember your first microscope?
1: Do I remember my first microscope? <laughs> well, uh, if you uh, allow me, uh, there certainly have to have been some microscopes in high school uh, when when we looked at samples and looked at a frog dissection or whatever, because you have you take we take a biology course, we take a chemistry course, we take a physics course, yeah, uh, and course. so that that. It is certainly there, but very dim in the memory, because there's it's hard to, to remember things that are that, are that far back. Uh, the the a more uh, relevant uh, comment about that is it's important to remember that uh, all of my entry into this whole field started with spectroscopy. So the, the variable that you change is more frequency or wavelength. Uh, and that's an axis on which you plot things. OK, as, as, as opposed to a spatial axis. So uh, which is the more commonly the way a microscope is viewed as having spatial axes, Okay, X and Y and Z or whatever. And so um, uh, the the microscope that's worth mentioning, perhaps in terms of uh, sort of a more important uh, microscope was uh, when we were uh, looking at single molecules at low temperatures at IBM research, okay? Uh, we started making hybrid images that had frequency and space. So it was essentially a confocal microscope because it was one position, but you uh, at a time until you move it across the sample. And then we also were changing the other variable, okay? uh, The frequency axis, and that can turn into a two-dimensional plot uh, that's a hybrid plot, okay? So that's a pretty important microscope because it was really one of the first times that we scanned over uh, the shape uh, of the single molecule spot, uh, which is really the point spread function of the system.
0: So so exciting times. And yes, yeah, so I guess the first research grade microscope at that point. I, I actually have in my office my first microscopy lesson at university that wrote down. Actually, I don't ask me how I just opened a book that I was thrown away, my uh-huh. university notes, and it, it was there. It was, I just opened it on that page. I thought, ah, oh. great. I've got to take this out and just put it on the wall and just realize how <laughs> bad I was at microscopy back then. Or even how much I hated microscopy back then. Uh Wonderful. the, the microscopes were not that great. And then obviously the world's got a lot better, and microscopes have got a lot, a lot, a lot, lot better. So yeah, actually yes. you sent some other pictures. So this is uh, obviously dating back somewhat. So this is definitely your <laughs> chemistry side of things. Uh, Let's describe who we've got here and what you're looking at.
1: Well, that's actually my, my physics PhD. Okay. Uh, There's, there's a professor Al Seavers. Okay. Uh, uh, With the beard Uh, and Andrew Kreplivy. Uh, a, uh, an older graduate student, a year older than me, who is a collaborator on, on my research work, and uh, what I'm holding, uh, if, you, if you can see it down at the bottom, is a model that shows the perinate ion, the ReO4 minus ion, the perinate ion. Uh, which uh, we had doped into a crystal of an alkali halide, such as potassium iodide. So the potassium iodide structure is shown there. Some of the, some of the atoms of the potassium iodide structure is shown with a uh, tetrahedral ReO4 molecule in the middle of it. So it's, it's a really interesting uh, sort of juxtaposition that you bring up here because that research, uh, you might call it at the time, chemical physics. Because uh, it was a molecule being studied by physicists, there actually are some physicists, uh, even as famous as Art Schawlow, who said if if, um, uh, if a system has uh, more more than two atoms, then it's chemistry, so it's not physics. Um, but here we were physicists studying uh, this perinate ion and its infrared properties, its infrared vibrational mode absorptions, and uh, in, in that solid which was like a host holding that perinate ion all of this at low temperatures so that's uh, sort of an interesting juxtaposition of physics and chemistry and so forth you know helped me in sort of my transition toward more chemistry (laughs) if you like but we were very interested in uh, the properties of how that behaved at low temperatures how it would how it would change when you radiate it with light how it would uh rotate uh inside the crystal change to a different configuration make the make what we call the spectral hole and and those kinds of optically induced transformations you see uh have 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 permeated my career yeah i I, what
0: was really great it's your passion talking about that it it seems to bring back actually quite a lot of excitement so what's been the most fun time of your career
1: I would say the most fun time uh, was when we were uh, beginning to study uh, these uh, these single molecules at, at IBM with with my postdoc, Pat Ambrose. And the experiment was looking at uh, the penicillin molecule uh, in a crystal of paratrophenol. I mean, that was the first system where we could see a single molecule and uh, one afternoon. Uh, by the way, at the at the research laboratory, there's there's the research room, uh, the, the laboratory, and then right across the hall is is my office, so I could go into the laboratory or in and out or whatever anytime I needed. Uh, but one day, uh, so, so you have to imagine what's going on. If, if as we're we're scanning the frequency of the laser, then uh, this was so-called excitation spectroscopy. When the frequency of the laser reached the resonance frequency of the molecule the optical absorption frequency of the molecule that's at 500 terahertz, by the way, or 593 nanometers. Okay. (laughs) Um, The fluorescence would increase and then you would detect more signal. And then as you tune further, it goes down again. So this is well known uh, as you might expect, but this is in the the frequency domain, very much like tuning your radio, you know, far away from uh, any uh, any city and then you can vary it mostly noise. And then finally, when you get just to the right frequency, you hear the, the signal from a particular station. So that's the molecule, you know, uh, coming into resonance and giving us fluorescence. Okay, great. So we were studying those line widths and all this business, right? But but Pat, one afternoon came running into my office and he said, the molecules are jumping around. They're They're moving from one frequency to another. <laughs> they're moving around. And uh, this was really exciting to us because we're, we're at 1.2 degrees Kelvin, okay, in a crystal. You know, we didn't really expect to see a lot of uh, uh, big dynamics, but the molecules would actually, their resonance frequency would move from one frequency to another, to another, to another, to another, back, and so on. So uh, this turned out to be, you know, the beginnings of blinking, okay, that molecules would be in resonance or out of resonance uh, and their local environment will be changed uh, by the optical excitation, which would then cause their resonance frequency to shift. So the optical excitation was changing their local environment. Molecules would shift back and forth. So these these jumping molecules, that was a truly exciting time because that was a total surprise. It was one of these things that uh, turned out to be, well, you could might have said that you could predict it. I mean, the theorists had for a long time been saying that molecules, you know, can move around in frequency space, in in glasses, and in systems that have sort of more... uh, loose dynamics, let's call it, um, uh, because lines would broaden. Well, uh, these spectral holes would broaden with time, which was a suggestion that the molecules were moving around. But here we saw these digital jumps from one frequency to another uh, and uh, in the crystal, which really, uh, really surprised us. That was very exciting.
0: So, And a I, 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 very good explanation of it. Did you realize at the time exactly what that meant when you saw that they were jumping about?
1: Well... Uh, we, we sort of um, quickly thought that, well, maybe this is spectral diffusion, maybe, maybe this is uh, a direct observation of spectral diffusion um, that sort of had been uh, described by theorists uh, previously uh, for glasses. Uh, but having it happen in, in sort of a discontinuous way uh, was 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 a, a wonderful surprise. And then the the grist of uh, theorists uh, who who then studied this in more detail, like uh, Jim Skinner, later on.
0: So from all that, all the research, obviously, I I, I like I like this picture because it is I got you described. This is your Nobel, right? <laughs> also, your I presume your wife and your son.
1: That's right. That's that's my wonderful wife, Sharon, my son, Daniel. Um, and uh, we're holding the, the medal the Nobel medal. But uh, the other uh, beautiful thing is the so-called diploma. Uh, and that painting there is, is a, an original painting drawn just for my prize. Each Nobel Prize has a diploma like this associated with it. So this was, of course, a great moment uh, after the uh, award ceremony. And, and stockholm
0: and so obviously your wife and son must have been very proud what what do you do in your spare time with them i presume you have spare time
1: <laughs> yes well uh since the prize there's actually been less spare time uh but uh, one of the one of the spare time things that that we spent a lot of time on uh historically was music uh singing and music um And uh, so I I actually uh, met my wife uh, through uh, through having fun with singing. Uh, Our son had a lot of fun with singing in high school as well. Um, And we were it turns out uh, that singing was something that uh, you may uh, recognize more. uh, And in the in the UK, Uh, it was Gilbert and Sullivan uh, singing Gilbert and Sullivan, so uh, singing Gilbert and Sullivan, and that connection is actually how I met my wife. So, uh, very nice uh, sort of connection occurred that through there. <laughs> she she comes from a family of of uh, very talented people and and singers and performers. Uh, her. Her father and mother uh, were the director and producer and partial founder of the Gilbert and Sullivan Society of San Jose. And so they they put on, uh, you know, over the years, you know, 20, 20 to 40 or whatever productions uh, and uh, several several operators were done every year. And and so I I picked this up actually in college uh, because I had a very close friend, Burr Stewart, who got me involved with uh, listening to Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, along with playing instruments, uh, clavichords, and he would, pl- he would play the flute, I'd play the clavichord, uh, and, and things like that. And eventually I uh, got involved in, in Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, listening to it a lot in college. And then in graduate school, when I'm supposed to be getting a PhD, uh, in the middle of that, I decided I'm going to go tr- try out for the lead of <laughs> um, uh, HMS Pinafore um out of the blue and uh, uh that was uh something that uh, i was encouraged to do uh, by by a, a wonderful postdoc uh don trotter who said you gotta try go ahead and try out right and so forth so i i went there and i sang for uh, you know the captain and i got the role of sir joseph porter knight commander of the bath kcb <laughs> and so uh, in, uh, in grad school i uh, performed um, that, uh, that role, uh, which was, which was great fun, but of course it takes too much time, <laughs> uh, to do that. I had to stop after just one, one show, get back to working on my PhD. But, uh, that is uh, why when I moved out here to IBM, uh, in, in California, uh, I, uh, w- easily decided to go, uh, try out for roles at, um, the Gilbert and Sullivan Society of San Jose, where I, where I met my wife and so on and that's the story after that <laughs> and, and this is a picture of your wedding yeah that's right yeah you, you really pulled out you some good ones then?
0: sorry how young were you when you married uh, i
1: was i was uh 30 okay
0: um you got that right otherwise you'd have been in trouble when your wife listens to this back that would have been just dreadful at that point <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah uh you're you're testing my memory okay uh as i get older and older you know memory those specific sort of things but uh so so you see in that picture on uh next to me are her father and mother the gilbert and sullivan uh experts of course they're both physicians uh, and had uh, uh, stunning careers uh and then my my father and, and stepmother beyond that um and then on the other side of my wife sharon is her sister uh and uh you know uh, and brother and then uh my very close friend burr is the very tall person uh, <laughs> with his wife barbara <laughs> so you know this it's quite a family picture here but um <clears throat> the the amazing thing about the the, the stein family that's my wife's fam- uh, family is that all of them would get involved in these Gilbert and Sullivan shows. So all, all of them would, would perform in some way or another or be involved with the lights or be involved with the stage or be involved with being a producer or being involved with, you know, <laughs> and, and costumes and building sets and so on. So it's, it, was, it was a great, fun activity.
0: So I was going to ask you if you started anything, but obviously you did get roles. You described that quite nicely. You, you have had roles in that.
1: Do you still do it? So what what happened is, uh, in terms of music, um, being in a big show requires a lot of rehearsals and then requires uh, uh, full time rehearsals, you know, the week before the performances start. So so so-called Hell Week. Uh, We uh, I just uh, wasn't able to dedicate that much time, uh, given given all of my research commitments and so on. So I I shifted more to uh, singing with large singing groups. uh, they mostly sing classical works um, and the uh, so a uh, uh, San Jose Symphonic Choir, uh, Scola Cantorum. So these all these different singing groups have uh, I've been in, I've been a member of over the years. The, the one that I was involved in for a good number of years was the uh, Stanford uh, Symphonic Choir. Uh, which, which would sing a, a lot of a large oratorios and things like that, and, which I enjoyed tremendously. Uh, but, uh, but since the prize, I haven't had time to do that. Um, it, and the thing about the voice that's particularly nice is that uh, you don't have to re- rehearse a lot. You do have to go to rehearsals, but you don't have to sort of beat on it every day like, you, like I had to do with, let's say, when I played the bassoon. <clears throat> in high school or when I played the clarinet or those sorts of instruments you, you really have to practice and practice and practice you know all the time uh, but, but but singing is is uh, more natural for me and you carry the instrument around with you and so on so it's it's uh I'll, I'll get back to it as soon as I possibly can so think about
0: getting back to things on a more serious note whenever your career do you think have you found most
1: challenging during your career one of the uh, challenges that uh, I found to be uh, something that I spent a lot of time thinking about was uh, when I decided to change careers, when I decided to uh, make the, the big transition uh, from, from IBM to academia. Uh, this this was difficult uh, at the time because uh, IBM research was a place where you sort of stayed there for life uh, historically. Um, And one of the things that was going on uh, during the the early 90s was uh, this this uh, large change uh, uh, in the computer industry. Um, The emergence of the personal computer uh, changed the the landscape tremendously and affected IBM. Uh, So there were there was one year where there was eight billion dollars in losses at IBM, Uh, and this uh, this sort of uh, changed the research division from uh, a place where uh, there were a large number of people working on basic science or important things for the company uh, to fewer people working on basic science. So I felt the the environment changing. Uh, I felt my opportunities sort of reducing somewhat we had we had detected single molecules, uh, which was a tremendous excitement and in in, in, for me scientifically and for all the people working in that area. But IBM actually wasn't so interested in that. They, they were more interested in STM and moving atoms around and things like that on the surface. And uh, so uh, I had to make this choice to um, switch to the uh, academic environment with 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 its exciting aspects, but also challenges. Um, there's, you have to wear, wear many, many hats, uh, at, at, the, at the, in academia, you have to get grants, you have to, uh, write proposals you, and you have to of course, uh, have, uh, mentor many graduate students and postdocs and, uh, be on committees and, uh, teach and all of that stuff all, all together, all at the same time. So it's actually been really exciting and, and, and a challenge, but I enjoyed the challenge. I mean, the challenge was, was, uh, uh, something that I, I think broadened me, and of of course the the uh, c- contact with many young people uh, in uh, academia has been spectacular, uh, and the freedom was higher in in uh, in academia, the freedom to explore whatever science I can get funded. So I could then switch to be, look at biological systems, which I wasn't able really to do at at IBM.
0: So go on. So so now you're at this point in your career, uh, if you could. Research anything. Forget the history, forget what, you, what you've majored in. What would you go on to do? What would you like to see researching? What would you like to succeed in?
1: So, um, you know, the uh, current trends in, uh, in science, many of them move toward quantum effects. And the power of uh, quantum mechanics and its ability to provide c- Special forms of computing and so on. Um, historically, that's been uh, studied mostly uh, by, by physicists, uh, again, on small systems now, uh, on, on atoms, uh, some number of systems that involve defects in solids. And there's not as much with molecules and uh, there's there's such a uh, power of molecules in in the sense that there's so many different structures that can be built and can be imagined and so on and so on. And we've actually shown, you know, that molecules uh, have power uh, can can be used for, you know, imaging beyond the diffraction limit and all sorts of things. Uh, and and so uh, having uh new systems available where there there can be sort of real entanglement in quantum systems uh, and, and molecules uh, for quantum mechanical applications. I think that would be exciting to to be able to do that. What's well, stopping me. You. <laughs> you know, one interesting thing about uh, all of uh, this, this field is having the right materials, you know, having, having the, the, uh, uh, electronic states and the interactions with the nearby environment and so forth that that maintain uh, maintain the, the wonderful properties and another way of saying that is molecules are highly quantum mechanical already but typically for very very short time scales uh, before uh, what's called dephasing uh, or decoherence sets in and decoherence destroys these quantum effects so one has to come up with schemes to to get uh, around that so
0: it's interesting I, I... So obviously uh, one of your fellow Nobel laureates at the same time was Eric Betzig. And I remember Eric and I asked about what he wanted to be as a child and he said an astronaut. And uh, I asked him what he wanted to be when he got into science. He said an astronaut, but he's not. And I asked him what he would be today if he could be and he'd still be an astronaut. But actually (laughs) you also have a passion for space. (laughs) Right. wonderful images of you, (laughs) I I, I guess a giant uh, signal detecting telescope where are you exactly in this picture?
1: <laughs> so uh, I am uh, at what's, what's called uh, the shack uh, of the uh, Stanford Amateur Radio Club uh, up on the hills behind the university. And uh, this is the uh, radio telescope, one of the radio telescopes. This one is only about, uh, uh, let's say, 10 meters in diameter. It's, it's not the huge radio telescope. There's one of those also up there. But this is for the ham radio operators to use. So, so this one is one uh, built and maintained by uh, amateur radio operators. And so this is another one of my hobbies. Uh, the beautiful aspect of, of, of that kind of a dish is that it's powerful enough uh, to transmit a signal toward the moon and bounce it off the moon so that that signal can reflect from the moon and come back and be detected again by the same antenna sometime later after the propagation time to the moon. This is so-called Earth-Moon-Earth transmissions. And so uh, this is one of the fun activities that the the amateur radio operators get involved in. Uh, I'm not being irradiated, I'm off to the side of this, uh, (laughs) of the antenna a little bit in this picture, but that night uh, we couldn't see the moon uh, because of those clouds that you see out there. Nevertheless, we could bounce signals uh, uh, off of the them. So one of the, one of the really fun things to do. So amateur radio and the connection with radio, the connection with electronics and frequency domain and yeah. uh, all of that uh, is, is, is throughout uh, this particular hobby, uh, which has become very digital now, but it's still using all of these uh, wavelengths and so forth that uh, uh, make amateur radio work.
0: It's a lovely interconnection, and you, I, I have to show it because it's just a wonderful image. Uh, so this is Hail Bob. I think right. I remember Hail Bob. Uh, a comment. <laughs> so is this your own image that you've yes. taken?
1: Yes, this is my own image, and uh, there's there's a little there's a great story behind it. So uh, this this I believe the year was 1997. Yeah, 1997. Uh, we. Our, uh, at that time, I was at UC San Diego, University of California at San Diego, okay, in, in La Jolla, California, down in Southern California. That's where my first faculty position was, and uh, I mean those. That was the faculty who took the chance on this crazy guy, okay, from from uh, from IBM, um, and the um, event there uh, is a special one because there was uh, also a lunar eclipse at the same night. Um, and so um, I, my my wife and son and I headed out to the Ensenada Desert. So this is from the Ensenada Desert, uh, which is inland from from uh, you know the coastal cities down down in Southern California, down San Diego area. Um, and I was just having a ball because I, I had uh, one camera aimed to the ocean. That's the direction to the west of where the Hale Bopp comet is over the mountains there, and and the other camera was headed uh to the to the east because that's where the lunar eclipse was occurring at, at this moment okay so uh, to do this <laughs> we, we we uh pulled our trailer out to the desert and set up for camping and so on and our son was uh uh six years old uh, at the time so uh they came out with me in the dark to see this crazy thing going on but they quickly got tired of you know sitting and watching and taking pictures and so on in the dark so that they went back in and to go to the to the camp, and I stayed out there taking these pictures, uh, and it was really, really great because after a while I started hearing, I started hearing sort of a, a bunch of coyotes, uh, you know, making a huge racket, you know, very nearby, uh, eating something. Okay, <laughs> so I quickly grabbed all of my all of my uh, cameras and headed back in to the uh, to the campsite, but uh, got these uh, great pictures at the time. Um, a bit of a sad note because this is the same night that uh, this crazy group of people uh, decided that there were aliens b- behind uh, the comment and uh so on and so they uh these, this is the people that uh, drank the kool-aid uh, uh that, that particular night uh unfortunately well uh, keep it on a happier
0: note <laughs> <And> it's fascinating <laughs> there's the, the interlink of uh, yourself and eric both both into astrophysics uh, astronomy and we've got, I don't know if in the UK, we've got a programme called Sky at Night. I don't know if you've ever come across, it's probably one of the, one of the oldest TV, still running TV programmes. Mm-hmm. And that's presented by Chris Lintop now. Uh, mm-hmm. And actually, he's been really important in now with the image analysis of biological images, especially in the cryo mm-hmm. in the uh, 3D electron microscopy community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's those connections, spectral and mixing. So Scott Fraser with all the spectral. Again, it came from the astronomers and what they were using, bringing it into Mm -hmm. the life sciences and into the Mm -hmm. microscopy world. There's Mm -hmm. fantastic crossovers. Mm -hmm. uh, It's also, again, the multidisciplinary approach, Mm -hmm. the the working with different partners, Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes the importance of blue sky research, because you never know where it will lead.
1: And yes, that's a, a really very very important point, and I, I didn't mention it earlier, uh, I, but I would like to go back to that great day when we first saw that spectral diffusion. That was a great example of this. Okay, D- people say, "Well, why do you want to try to detect a single molecule?" They were sort of making fun of me at that time. What good will it be? Who cares? So we don't want to know what, what one molecule is doing. Uh, we'd like to. Oh, we care about the average value, and the, of course, the real reason for doing it is that you learn new things, you're looking in a regime where you haven't looked before and you may not know everything that you're going to see. And, and that's exactly you know, what that example illustrates and, and the many other examples since. So uh, this is this is why a blue sky researcher pushing back boundaries or uh, looking in places where we haven't looked before and things like that, uh, all uh, ha- ha- still have great value. And, and, and I'd like to, um, you know, connect with what you just said. You 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 mentioned electron microscopy, and right? you mentioned uh, some of those things. Uh, some of the newest things that uh, we've been doing in my lab. And there's a g- great uh, postdoc, uh, Pete Dahlberg, that has been working with me, and uh, he and I have uh, built this system where we do both uh, single molecule imaging uh, with fluorescence and electron microscopy at this on the same sample, precisely the same sample. So this has the effect of annotating the electron microscope image with the single molecule positions. See, annotation has been done for some time, but that's by people sort of identifying a membrane and then coloring it in or identifying ribosomes and coloring it in. But there's thousands of proteins that you can't identify with your eyes. You can't see, you can't recognize them. You don't know which protein is which. So there's thousands of hidden proteins in an electron microscope image so uh, with this uh, single molecule experiment we, we light them up and, and we can say where they are to within you know the, the precision we get from the photons detected on the order of uh, let's say 10 nanometers uh, which is far far better than doing that from the diffraction limited uh, re- uh, regime uh, and getting providing information of let's say where in a cell what is the Cellular location of a particular set of proteins this way.
0: Yeah. Do you know, after this, we'll have a quick chat about that in more detail uh, and see where that fits in. Uh, we've done some work with Lucy Collinson uh, in the past, uh, which is driving down a very similar route. So it'd be interesting to cross some right. notes on that. Uh, yeah. Some quick fire questions uh, mm. <laughs> Mac or PC? PC. You PC. See. You see? Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Early bird. Do you have any bad habits?
1: Uh, Being a procrastinator. Oh,
0: you've done well to publish so much if that's your bad habit how do you publish so much if that's your well, bad habit
1: <laughs> it, it, it's been a fight it's been a battle <laughs> my 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 thesis uh the papers that came out of my thesis work did take several years after i left cornell to actually get them published uh but my, my wife helped a lot in sort of getting me to finish those papers and uh, she she's actually helped me uh, cure me of the procrastination business but still okay if there's a, an interesting uh Uh, i'll give you an example this last weekend uh there was a reenactment of the 1921 first transcontinental uh radio uh uh, signal radio message being sent across uh, the the atlantic okay so uh this is a big deal it's the 100th year anniversary so the 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 hams in the United States decided to reenact, and so they were going to send from the the East Coast and and so on. So uh, I had to go out there and set up my radio and try to see if I could also detect it of course, they're sending the signal the other way. They're not sending it west. I didn't have really a good antenna. It didn't quite work, but it was fun. <laughs> and, and that was something that kept me from, you know, writing the, the papers or the letters or whatever that I was supposed to be doing this weekend. <laughs> so uh, anyway, there's still procrastination.
0: So, so, you know, I think there's a lot of <clears throat> PhDs, postdocs, who, who are very <clears throat> reluctant to publish their work. because There's always, well, always one more experiment that can be done. So how do you draw the line and say, no, we've got, you know, you're a procrastinator. So how do you actually say, no, 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 we do have to go with this now? Do you have any advice for those who struggle to get to that point? I actually commit to publishing.
1: Mm. Well, I guess I'd like to make a distinction between being a procrastinator and, and being a perfectionist. Because uh, I think they're a little bit different. Uh, procrastinator is doing something else rather than working on what you're supposed to be working on. A perfectionist keeps thinking, "Oh, I got to do it a little more perfect, a little more perfect, a little more perfect." Okay, and that's something that also can can slow down uh, publication. Uh, and um, the the answer to that question is 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 a tricky one. It depends upon the experiment. It depends upon the system. It depends a lot upon. Uh, assessing, what have we learned now? What have we learned so far? Uh, have we learned a, a number of new things? And if we've gotten a reasonable number of new things, then, you know, it, there's a great value in, in sending it out to the community to, to so that other people can learn about this and start working on it as well. Um, and, and I'm, I'm more in that category than taking a super long time. Um, uh, before before trying to submit something. Uh, I have to admit, though, let me just say there's there's always uh, good and bad sometimes on, on certain things. Part of this is because uh, our culture and research in the United States is more tuned to uh, getting results, publishing papers and getting more grants. And, and uh, because of the challenge of getting grants, because of the incredible challenge, there were many years that I did not get grants uh, on our new biological imaging work um you you know that you better publish in order to get uh get the crucial funds that are required to support the group as a as a university researcher if you don't bring that money in you can't pay the students so uh that's that's a very harsh realization you know that makes academia different from uh from what was going on at ibm and uh so you know that, I think, unfortunately, also pushes us sometimes to publish a little faster.
0: And, say, and, and a lot of pressure at work. And I presume, is this a lot of your lab?
1: <laughs> yes, you can see we're under great pressure there <laughs> in, that, in that wonderful moment.
0: Well, I can see all wearing hats of some sort, which is uh, always a great <laughs> thing.
1: So if you can't quite see it because of your shoulder, but down on the floor, if you can move slightly more, maybe you can see the tip of a, a bottle of champagne. Uh, so there is a bottle of champagne down there on the floor, and uh, the the student in the middle, Josh Yoon, um, did uh, uh, graduate here. Okay, this was uh, the the result of a successful either a paper you know published in a high level journal or uh, or a uh, uh, successful thesis defense. That that's the kind of thing that we have th- these these uh, celebrations for, and uh, he he's wearing a protective helmet okay because we're going to shoot the cork down the hallway uh as far as possible so the goal here is to shoot the cork uh, uh down the hall uh of, of the laboratory uh as as far as possible and you see there's other interesting uh, <laughs> uh hel- hats and helmets and so on uh i have one on but you may not be able to see that but everybody is there you know uh uh you know, cheering on the the the, the group member who has uh, recently achieved something important, and uh, for this sort of ceremonial shooting of the champagne cork. So um, this is just—I uh, sent you this picture because it's kind of a wonderful example of some of the crazy things we do to have fun. We don't just work, work, work. We we uh, we have some fun as well. Uh, with, with, uh, with that, with things like that. And in that picture, I, I, I want to show you something else if you, if you show it one more time, if you can, cool, um, you may notice that uh, there is a belt bag around my waist here. Okay. So uh, that is not quite understood by many people, but you know, it, I find it a way, a convenient way to you know, have the phone and the, you know, wallet and, Even a flashlight and a few important things that you might need in an emergency. It's all coming from ham radio and emergency communications kind of stuff. Want to be ready for what's going on. So as part of a um, uh, farewell party, uh, the students made um, (laughs) some ceremonial (laughs) belt bags. Well, this one has says no ensemble averaging yep. <laughs> on it, <laughs> designed by Allison Squires, the woman's down here with, with the maroon cap, <laughs> and, and the other students, whichever students were also leaving at the same, postdocs leaving at the same time uh, as a ceremonial item. <laughs> Do you wear it? Oh, this one, I, I, I'm i still aware of the, the old ugly looking black one. This one, this one's so important. I couldn't possibly, I, I might get it old or dirty. I have to put it in in a, uh, a special place inside the house.
0: That's why you always need two of everything. So you can actually enjoy wearing one and uh, keep the other one for keepsakes. That's right.
1: That's right. That's right. That's right.
0: So back to my really... questions. I, I, and actually my next one, you're going to, I, I know the answer already. TV or book? <laughs>
1: Uh, well, uh, I actually I think I have to say a mixture. <laughs> uh, okay. we, we watch the news quite a lot on TV because uh, we we end up uh, looking at the news while while exercising, let's say, and uh, in, in the mornings. <laughs> uh, and, and books, of course, are uh, something that I actually would like to read more. I'm, I'm unhappy that I haven't read that many books uh, and I, I would like to read more. Uh, it requires um, turning off all the other lists of things that have to be done. Uh, And and to dedicate time to that.
0: Uh, What's your favourite film? Your favourite movie?
1: Contact. Okay,
0: and you know I wish I'd asked every guest this. I've only asked a few.
1: What's your favorite? Although although I have to say that the new foundation series is really spectacular. Okay. Okay. (laughs) the the Isaac Asimov, uh, uh, many, many uh, episodes, 10 episodes of the foundation has been really, really great. But uh, I don't think it displaces contact. What about your favorite Christmas movie? Oh. I have no idea. Uh, I mean, in in. I, I'll just say that this week uh, I, I happened to get some crazy enjoyment uh, out of watching um, the the uh, the woman who puts on this annual Christmas show uh, about the only thing I want for Christmas is you. Mariah Carey's Christmas mm-hmm. show was just nuts, and this year and and fairly fairly entertaining because of uh, all the crazy things that were done.
0: That sounds like good fun. So, okay, tea or coffee?
1: I'm more of a coffee person, but I mix in teas also. Uh, so it's like half and half these days. Okay, are they short coffees or are they big coffees? Hmm. Uh, big coffees. Uh, more often, more often we do a brewed coffee uh, rather than uh, rather than espresso. Okay. Beer or wine? Wine.
0: Red or white? Red. Okay. Um, if you were to be taken out for food, what's your favorite food type?
1: Uh, I think I would say seafood. I think I would say, you know, salmon. We have lovely salmon out here, so it's really wonderful. And do you have any food hates?
0: If you're dished up, so you go to a conference, you're dished up something, I really don't like that. What well, what's your nightmare food?
1: Ah, uh, I don't know. I'm I, I'm really omnivorous right now. Uh, I uh, didn't used to like um, collard greens. Let's say, because uh, my parents uh, uh, fed it to me a lot. I guess that might be something I don't enjoy as much. <laughs> and who cooks at home? Ah, uh, well, it's um, more. Uh, it's my wife. Uh, although I cook my breakfast every day. Uh we these days, uh, since we're cooking a lot at home, um, are utilizing one of these services that uh sends fresh food to us, and then we have to cut it all up and so forth and cook it. And so she often does a lot of the cutting. Sometimes I do a lot of the part of the frying and uh so on, or not really always frying, but cooking, you know, and uh and and uh finishing off uh, some of the dishes. So uh as we, we tend to share. Uh, when when
0: i can okay and we are nearly up to the hour incredibly it goes way too fast i'd like to take you back actually and i, I have read your your nobel piece and you actually sent me this picture of your parents mm-hmm. uh, have they, do you think they've been the biggest influence on your career and who who else has been an influence on your career
1: well, they've been a tremendous influence in the early, incredibly formative days, uh, up until age eight, 18 or so. You know, after after finishing high school and heading off to college. Um, uh, during that time, it was the was that that also important time. My mother was reading to me very early on. My father uh, gave me a lot of appreciation for for the sciences, uh, and uh, through his. A connection with uh physics chemistry and electronics and uh he was he was also by the way in terms of images he was he was a professional photographer that was actually his career so a lot of images there and so on um and um, and chemicals uh in in the in, because of uh the developing but anyway they they just gave me a tremendous support in my work and even though most people um or there's a lot of people that, that don't want to leave uh, texas where, where i grew up um uh they still supported me uh, when I went far away to Washington University in St. Louis uh, rather than going to uh, one of the universities in, in Texas which are also very good, uh, it was better for me to see the bigger world um, in in terms of the overall development uh, and they supported it anyway uh, and and uh, so you know I was an only child so it was a, it was a tough thing for them uh, when I left um, of course, the other major influences uh, are, are, are mentors that have been really important along the way. Uh, uh, Professor Jim Miller at, at Washington University was the one who uh, got me more involved with experimental physics and projects in the laboratory and his laboratories at, uh, at Washington Univer- University. Uh, and uh, he had uh, a tremendous also uh, personal influence in terms of, uh, Advising me how to navigate through all the complexities of, of college, and then uh, the other really important mentor is is my thesis advisor Al Sievers that you saw in the in that picture uh, with uh, with the molecules. Um, so, you know, I've I've profited from a number of really really good um, uh, mentors, even at IBM. Uh, uh, Gary Bjorklund at IBM was a was a key uh, key influencer. Uh, in FM spectroscopy, which is what we, I use to detect a single molecule, so there's there's a tremendous uh, crew of of people that I've been very thankful for.
0: And I, I also note that actually you, you gained a scholarship very early on, which you actually mm-hmm. paid tribute to to being a significant part because none of this would have been possible without a scholarship in your in your particular right. case.
1: Right, right. That that was. Uh, the influence of, of, of a very important uh, counselor at the high school. So, so at the high school, there were many, many things going on. I was involved with on the spot. I was in the band. I was in speech and debate. I was in all kinds of events. But, but, and, the, and of course, the courses in science uh, as well. But um, the the counselor uh, let me know about this in, in very special. Um, Langsdorf Fellowship competition at Washington University. And uh, that was a, a key influence uh, because she urged me to apply for it and and I eventually got it. And being able to go to Washington University was a key step. Yes, absolutely right.
0: And on one final note, because we are up to the hour, I can't help but admire your tie that you are wearing. <laughs> uh, which, yes. which, actually, I'm not sure. It's, it's
1: not a big screen. What exactly is it? Yeah, so you, if you look at more of it, <laughs> uh, you see that it's got many, many colors uh, of of the spectrum and so forth. Uh, this is this is the uh, SPIE tie, uh, one of these uh, uh, societies that provides conferences uh, on on imaging microscopy, lasers, photonics, and all kinds of things, uh, uh, and has a has a tie like that. I, I thought it might be uh, kind of appropriate uh, for for this for this today. Now I'm embarrassed not to be wearing my Royal Microscopical
0: Society tie, but I, I'm not a big tie man myself. I'm very much an open collar. So <laughs> it
1: does look- I'm not normally either, but you know, uh, this is a special occasion to be able to talk to you like this,
0: Pete. Yeah. So W, thank you very much for joining me today. Everyone who's watched or listened, uh, it is actually worth a quick watch as well to see some of the images that W actually sent in. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to meet you, get to know you personally and I hope everyone's really enjoyed it. And don't forget to subscribe to the channel. WE, thank
1: you very much. It was my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you as well. I, I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a Bite sized Bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the dash microscopists.